afraid of a global nuclear disaster? Or the likes of a Star Wars cosmic conflict? Are we on a countdown to the Battle of Armageddon? What does the future hold for our world? Have you tried to understand the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation only to be confused by all the symbols? These and many other amazing questions will be answered through this prophecy seminar. Yes, you can understand the books of Daniel and Revelation, and in the process, get to know God in a deeper way. Welcome to Prophecy Seminar, the book of Daniel. Here is your host, Pastor David Price. Well, good evening, friends. It's my pleasure and privilege to again welcome you to the Daniel and Revelation Prophecy Seminar. Tonight, we're going to be starting in the book of Daniel, and um, we're up to Prophecy Seminar Lesson number 23. Tonight, we are going to have a look at the theme of Jesus' second coming, and also the fascinating topic of the rapture. It's always a good idea, I think, before we open God's word, to begin with prayer. Let us pray. Our loving Father in heaven, our greatest need tonight is the gift of your Holy Spirit, that we might rightly understand this amazing topic of how your son Jesus Christ returns to planet Earth. I pray that we will receive the wisdom and guidance that we need as you have given us in previous sessions. And I thank you and praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right, so if you're joining us from YouTube, we're on lesson 23. You can download the lesson under the description bar and uh, follow along with us. Um, for the rest of the students tonight, if you've done your lessons, I'm just going to direct your attention to the screen. We're at the top of page two. The book of Daniel begins with a mighty defeat for the people of God, but it ends in chapter two with a mighty deliverance for God's people. This great day of deliverance will be marked by the glorious appearing of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. This lesson tonight will unlock the glorious truth of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Tonight I have three theme questions for you. Number one, does Jesus Christ return to the earth in a secret coming? Two, are people left behind on this earth to be converted after the rapture event takes place? Three, where did the rapture teaching originally come from? So we're in lesson 23 tonight, and uh, we're focusing on the second coming of Christ. Our lesson is entitled, The Day of Deliverance, and our first heading is entitled, the final events of Daniel chapter 12. Let's go to question one. Who stands up for God's people in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1? We're using in this series the New King James Version. Daniel writes, At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never wants since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. 
We're asking the question tonight, who stands up for God's people? It's very clear in Daniel chapter 1. It's someone called Michael. But who is this Michael really? Let's go back to verse 1 for further details. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. So there's our answer in our lesson guides. The answer is the great prince. But when we go back to the Hebrew word, the Hebrew word for prince is sar. And it is easily translated and means equal to the captain of the Lord's host. Now, if that's a correct translation, I want you to just watch out when we go a little bit further with the story of Joshua and uh, Jericho. So remember this description that this person named Michael is a great prince and we believe him to be the captain of the Lord's host. He's the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. Let me share with you the note. Many have understood Michael to be a reference to Christ. Christ is the great prince that stands for God's people. Michael is also called the archangel in Jude 9. Jesus is said to return the second time with the voice of an archangel. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 Thus it would seem logical that Michael is a possible reference to Christ himself. However, it must remain very clear that Christ, even though he's called Michael, is still fully God. Thus, the one who comes to deliver God's people at this time of apparent defeat is none other than Jesus Christ himself. Friends, I'm going to ask you now to just direct your attention to the screen to give you some extra material on this particular subject. We're asking tonight, who is Michael? Also um, can be said as Mikael. What is this E-L ending? Well, some of you would know in the Hebrew that the name for God is Elohim, and the I-M ending means that it is plural. Michael as a name can mean Christ-like or God-like, but it really means one-like or one equal to God. In fact, it also is a name that is a challenge, which is like, who is like God? And the answer is no one, except in Isaiah 14, 14. We come into contact with someone who thought that they were possibly up to God's standard. If you have a look on the screen, Isaiah 14 and verse 14, this is Lucifer, one of heaven's highest angel officers. And what did he say? He said, I will be like the most high God. And so that was Lucifer's boast. So we're discovering tonight who is Mikael or who is Michael in Jude verse 9 or Jude 1 9. We get a description of who he is. Yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against the devil a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. What's this all about? Some of you remember that Moses sinned by striking the rock and could not go into the promised land. And so after he died, Moses had died, Michael the archangel comes down and Satan the devil comes to him and says, wait a minute, wait a minute, I'm the God of this world, what are you doing here? And what did 
Michael the archangel say? He didn't curse out the devil. All he said was, the Lord rebuke you. Friends, when you're dealing with the voice of the devil, the voice of temptation in your ear, here is a powerful way of overcoming. And that is to ask God via prayer, to ask Jehovah God to actually rebuke Satan and send him fleeing. I think that's a really powerful method of making the devil flee. So Moses had died. Michael the archangel comes down and resurrects Moses. Now you have to ask yourself, is this something that an angel can do? Is this the role of an angel to do resurrections? We get more description in Matthew 17, 1 to 3 on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember Jesus took up three of the disciples. Do you remember their names? Well, they'd have to be Peter and James and John, the two brothers. What was going on in the mountaintop? Well, we have on the left there Moses, and then we have on the right there Elijah. So in the middle we have transfigured in radiant light Moses, Jesus, and Elijah. What had happened was that Moses had come down from heaven with Elijah, and Moses and Elijah were encouraging Jesus to go through and drink the cup of suffering, that is to die on the cross. Moses represented all those who will die and be resurrected at the second coming. Elijah represented all those who will be alive at Jesus' second coming and will be translated up without seeing death. So Jude 1 tells us that Michael is the archangel. In 1 Thessalonians 4.16, it says, for the Lord himself. Now, in the Greek, the word himself in the Greek is altos. It means the Lord himself. It's a double emphasis for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, not another. And this himself refers to the next line. That is, is his own voice. He comes with the voice of an archangel himself and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. So we learned our second text, the voice of the archangel raises the dead in Christ from their graves. Now there's a third verse. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming, Jesus said, and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Verse 28 of John 5. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. And they'll come forth, those who've done good to the resurrection of life, and those who've done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. So we're reading there in verse 28, all who are in the graves will hear his voice. Whose voice is that? Well, the answer is in the end of verse 25, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. So the voice who raises the dead at the second coming is none other than Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So we have Michael the archangel, the voice of the archangel raises the dead. Then we have Jesus' voice raises the righteous dead back to life. And so here we have a divine formula. Therefore, based on all of those facts, Jesus must be Mikael, the archangel. Is there more proof of this? Absolutely. Friends, let's also make it very, very clear that Jesus might be head of the angels, but he is not an angel, nor is he a created being. In fact, John 1, 1 to 3, 10 and 14 tells us that Jesus never, ever was a created being. In fact, in the Old Testament, 
Jesus Christ is referred to many times as the angel of Jehovah. Many times people get caught up on the word angel, but in the Hebrew, the word malak of Yahweh just means messenger. It would have been better translated as messenger of Yahweh, messenger of Jehovah. This angel of Jehovah is repeatedly seen by Jacob, Manoah, Gideon, and Joshua. And I have presented a two-part sermon series on this. It's very, very heavy going, but it really is fascinating to go through all the Old Testament stories of the appearances of the angel of Jehovah. The fourth point I'd like to make tonight is an archangel is head of or over all the angels, which the scriptures call the heavenly host. That's his role. He is the head, the commander, the captain, the ruler of those angels. Let's go to Joshua 5, 13 to 15. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. This must have startled Joshua. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? So he said, no, I'm not for your adversaries, but I've come as commander of the army of the Lord. I have now come. Do you remember what we uh, learned earlier about the prince? That the prince was the commander or the captain or the leader of the hosts of the angels of God. This is totally consistent with what we've read in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1. Did Joshua know who it was? Verse 14, and Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take your sandal off your foot for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua totally obeyed the word of the Lord. Well, friends, could this have been an angel that appeared to Joshua? We go to Revelation 19, 9 and 10. Then the angel said to me, John, write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the angel said to me, these are the true sayings of God. And I, John, fell at his feet, the angel, to worship him. But the angel said to me, see that you do not do that. Here is a very important point, friends. Angels never receive worship in the scriptures. They are not to receive worship. This is against the kingdom and the laws and rules of God. Our fifth point is we find out who is Mikael. We know that Christ is not a created being because angels as created beings are not to be worshipped. The captain of the Lord's host, otherwise known as Mikael, the archangel, however, did receive Joshua's worship and instructed him to do so Take off your shoes for the uh, ground in which you stand is holy ground. The Jewish literature describes Mikael as the highest of the angels, the true representative of God, and identifies him with the angel of Yahweh, frequently mentioned in the Old Testament as a divine being. Friends, here's a fascinating quote from the book, Every Angel in the Bible. Christ's identification of himself with the I am of the Old Testament, this is a reference to Exodus 3 and verse 14, provides strong evidence that the angel of the Lord may in fact be Christ, God's eternal son, 
appearing in angelic form prior to his incarnation as Jesus. Indeed, there's no mention of the angel of the Lord after the birth of Jesus. Friends, I rest my case. So where is that taken from? This is Larry Richard's book, page 32, and it's worthy of study. It's called Every Angel in the Bible. Friends, I'd like to finish on this last point in this section on Mikael. Friends, is it possible for Jesus to be the head of the angels and yet not be an angel? Let me give you an earthly illustration. You would all know that the Queen of England is the sovereign head of the Commonwealth around the world, but she's also the sovereign head of the Commonwealth of Australia. Yet the Queen also represents all the men of Australia. But I'm sure that you've noticed that the Queen of England is not a man, neither is she an Australian, and yet she is seen as a fit representative of the throne of England. Well, would you join me back in question uh, number three? We're halfway down page two in our lesson guides tonight, our study of the second coming of Jesus Christ. What happens when Michael attempts to deliver God's people? And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. Friends, I believe many people believe that we've entered into this great time of trouble right now. As Christ prepares to come to deliver his people and destroy the great final apostate, the world is plunged into the greatest time of trouble there's ever been. So I believe the last 20 years were really the age of terrorism, but I believe we've now gone into a new and dangerous age, which is the age of the destruction of capitalism, the rise of socialism, and the rise of many nations speaking as dragons, the age of totalitarianism, where the people do what the governments of the day say um, at great personal risk to themselves. Question four, what happens to God's people at the end of this time of trouble in Daniel chapter 12 and verse one? And at that time, your people, Daniel, shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book. That's the good news, isn't it? That God's people will be delivered. God's people go through this climactic time of trouble, but they are delivered. Question five, while those who are alive at this time are delivered, what happens to those who are dead? We go back to Daniel chapter 12 and we look at the second verse. Daniel wrote, and many that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So the Bible always describes death as a sleep. Those who sleep, the sleep of death in the dust of the earth, the ground, they shall awake. Praise God, there will be a glorious resurrection of the righteous at this time. This is the time where our lost loved ones will be placed back in our arms. That's the day I'm longing for. That's the day I'm hoping for. Well, we're at the top of page three and our uh, second heading is called the second coming of Christ. Join me in question six. What event delivers God's people and resurrects the righteous? First Thessalonians 4, 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, 
and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. That is, those who've died believing and following and obeying Jesus Christ. Friends, this is typifying, this resurrection is typifying why Moses was there to encourage Jesus. Moses in that Mount Trigger that Mount of Transfiguration appearance is actually saying to Jesus, I represent all the people who have died, believing and hoping that you will be the Lamb of God, the Saviour of the world. And so that's a powerful moment, isn't it? Moses, Jesus and Elijah encouraging Jesus' heart to stay the course and go through to the cross for us. Verse 17, we're in 1 Thessalonians 4. What event delivers God's people and resurrects the righteous? Then we, Paul writes, who are alive and remain shall be caught up. These are the translated ones. Together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. I do want to just add in there that those words caught up in the Greek are rapturio. And that is often um, the point where people try and um, share the rapture doctrine from this verse all right so what do we notice here this verse represents the translation to heaven of all those who will be alive when jesus christ comes back the righteous people who will be caught up to heaven and elijah also encouraged the heart of the lord jesus christ that he represented all those who'd be alive and needed jesus christ to be successful on the cross you see elijah never saw death did he he went to heaven in that flaming chariot of fire and threw back his mantle or his cloak to his servant who became the prophet Elisha. So we're looking at the answer of question six. What event delivers God's people and resurrects the righteous? The answer is the second coming of Jesus Christ. When Christ comes, the righteous dead are resurrected. Those who are alive and are delivered are caught up to meet Jesus Christ in the air. The second coming of Christ is one of the most glorious truths in the entire Bible. Numerous passages in the New Testament speak of this momentous event. In fact, one of these verses speaks of it every 25 verses, and that relates to directly the second coming. That's a lot of verses, isn't it? Question seven, what did Jesus promise to his disciples in John 14, one to three? He said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Friends, if you're going through a personal time of trouble, I want to tell you tonight that God is with you. He is saying, do not be afraid. Do not be troubled. You can be putting your faith and your trust in me. In John 14, verse 2, Jesus said, In my Father's house, maybe better translated, in my Father's dwelling place, there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, the four greatest words, surely, of Scripture, I will come again. I'll return to planet Earth and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So the great promise, the great hope for Christians is that Jesus Christ will come again. The second coming of Christ is based upon the sure promise of Jesus Christ to his disciples who declared that he would come again. So just have a look at the screen, friends. I want to tell you today that Jesus Christ coming 
will be a literal event. It will not be symbolic. It will not be a metaphor. It will be a real and powerful event. That takes us to question eight. How will Christ come again? Now, that's a very, very good question. What form will it take? We go to Acts 1, 9 to 11. In these verses, I've underlined um, verses that show that the disciples were eyewitnesses. Now, when Jesus had spoken these things, while they watched the disciples and apostles, Jesus was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. They were eyewitnesses. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. These are two angels who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. So, friends, this is very, very important to notice. The same Jesus comes back the same way he left. Why is that? Because there's going to be a false coming of Christ and that false coming of Christ will be actually an impersonation done by Jesus' main rival, that is the devil and Satan. So we need to know exactly how Jesus Christ returns to earth so we're not deceived. This same Jesus will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So will Jesus Christ come back in a UFO? Will Jesus Christ come back in a submarine? No, he has to come back in exactly the same way that he left. Jesus will return in the same way that he ascended. His ascent was personal and visible. Therefore, his descent will be visible and personal. So let's have a look at the screen. Our second point here is that this second coming of Christ will be a visible event. It is not going to be a secret event. Question nine, how many people on earth will see Christ come the second time in Matthew 24, 30? Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. What is that sign? It's Jesus Christ with clouds of angels. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. How many people on earth will see Jesus Christ come the second time? It's everyone on earth. All the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. Why are they mourning? Well, that's because they don't want to see Jesus coming and they are crying out with fear. What a sad day that will be for them. The second coming of Christ will be a world encircling event. Not only the righteous, but all the wicked will see him. The wicked will mourn his coming, but the righteous will rejoice. And so I have to tell you now that in point number three, Christ's coming will be a joyous event. It'll be a very, very happy time for those who have longed for and waited for Jesus' coming. How many eyes will see Christ come in Revelation 1-7? Behold, he's coming with clouds and every eye will see him. People have asked me, what are these clouds? How can you have clouds in outer space? The answer is that the angels that accompany Jesus will look at a distance like they're actually clouds of whiteness and brightness so the answer is every eye will see him both the wicked and the righteous will see christ return a second time and so here is our fourth point so christ's coming will be a glorious a glorious glorious event what a wonderful day that will be 
what are Christians to do when someone tells them that Christ is coming secretly? You know what? Jesus addressed this in Matthew uh, 24. He actually said there, there would come false Christs and false prophets that would be so convincing they would almost deceive the very elect. In other words, God's chosen people might even be deceived. What did Jesus say? He said, therefore, if they say to you, the false Christs and false prophets, look, he's in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. Friends, remember I said there is a false coming of Christ by Satan? So Jesus is warning here that false Christs and false prophets will appear. What does it mean, don't go out and if they say, look, he's in the inner rooms? The King James actually translates that as the secret chambers. I wondered if that is a reference that the false Christ is actually in maybe the secret chambers or the TV studios. And, and Jesus is saying, look, don't go and don't look. Do not believe it. This will be a great deception. What are Christians to do when somebody tells them that Christ is coming secretly? The answer is do not believe it. Friends, you need to remember, and we're going to cover this in question 14 tonight, that Jesus Christ never sets foot on the earth at the second coming of Christ. Question 14 gives us the text for that. Well, friends, the scripture is clear. There is nothing secret about the second coming of Christ. Anyone who says that Christ is coming secretly is completely mistaken, and the Christian is not to believe him. Well, come over the page. We're at the top of page four, and uh, we are about to go to uh, question number four. Notice there that question 12. Notice on the screen that illustration very, very clearly shows us the clouds of angels. What does Jesus use in question 12 to describe the visibility of his second coming? Well, this is a remarkable verse. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, Jesus said, so also would the coming of the Son of Man be. It's bright, it's direct, it's like a bolt of lightning. Friends, lightning can be seen with the eyes closed, can't it? It actually penetrates the eyeball, reminding us again, this is not a secret, this is not a closed event. This is not symbolic, it's literal, and it's personal, and it's audible, and it's visual. Question 13, what words does Paul use to indicate that Christ will come with much noise? Well, we go to 1 Thessalonians 4.16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So the Lord descends with a shout, the voice of the archangel, and the trumpet call of God. Friends, there's no silent trumpet. The trumpet pierces the ear to announce the glad tidings that Jesus has returned. We're told to see Psalm 50 and verse 3, our God shall come and shall not keep silent. This is a noisy coming. A foul fire shall devour before him and it shall be very tempestuous all around him. Friends, can you imagine the noise and the roar? Can you imagine here that Christ's coming will be an audible, noisy event? I remember when I was a teenager, we were on an actual um, uh, yeah, weekend camp, kind of a pathfinder thing, like a scout's uh, weekend away. And one of my friends got up very early in the morning and he got his bugle and he blew his little blue bugle in my ear. <laughs> and I got such a fright, I jumped out of bed, I ran around, banged into a few doors and cupboards. 
I really didn't know what was happening. But I can tell you, if a bugle is loud, then I can assure you that the trumpet of God is going to be even louder than that, and that might wake the dead. Question 14, where do the righteous meet Jesus in 1 Thessalonians 4.17? Here's the answer of where Jesus actually is at the second coming. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them, that's the righteous dead who've been resurrected, in the clouds to meet the Lord where? Not on the earth, but in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Remember the righteous go back to heaven as we studied in previous lessons uh, to review the work of the judgment during the millennium for the 1,000 years. Where do the righteous meet Jesus? Very, very simply, they meet him in the air. Did you note carefully that Jesus does not touch the earth when he comes back the second time? The righteous living and those resurrected from the dead are caught up to meet him in the air. At the end of the thousand years, Jesus returns and touches the earth. See lesson 16. But not when he comes back the second time. So Jesus sets foot on the earth the first time he was here as baby Jesus through to his crucifixion. He sets foot on the earth in Zechariah 14 um, and verse 4 and 10 at the third coming. But at the second coming, he does not set foot on the earth. Therefore, any Christ walking around uh, during these days through the second coming is not Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. Well, the scriptures use very strong words to indicate that the second coming will be accompanied by much noise and visibility. For centuries, it has seemed that God has been silent. But now, suddenly at the second coming, God speaks and the whole world will know it. Friends, seven biblical facts about the second coming. Jesus' second coming is literal, personal, visible, audible, glorious, climactic and decisive. This is no secret event. The whole point of the second coming is to let everybody know on earth that Jesus Christ has come to rescue his people. Well, that takes us through to our third heading tonight. Is there a secret rapture? We're going to now present a summary of the secret rapture teaching. Well, one of the main distortions of biblical truth in the world today is the doctrine of the secret rapture. This teaching asserts that Christ will come secretly. One morning, several of us will wake up to discover that many people are missing. Well, what has happened to them? Christ has come and raptured them. This is presented as the second coming of Christ. And those who are left are then plunged into a deep time of trouble when the mark of the beast will be inflicted and the Antichrist will appear. This seems strange in view of the clear Bible teaching that Christ will come visibly and personally. The scriptures make it very plain that the righteous will not be secretly raptured out of the world before this final time of trouble comes. They will remind, they will remain here during the time of trouble, but as they pass through it, they will be protected by the angels of God. So why is such a doctrine being propounded? The advocates of the doctrine of the secret rapture believe that God is going to use the literal nation of Israel in a special way in the last days. Since God is going to use the ethnic nation of Israel as his final evangelizing agency, there's no longer any need for the church. Therefore, God raptures the church out of the way so he can use Israel to evangelize the world. 
Well, back in Lesson 22, we discovered that in New Testament times, Israel refers to the Christian church. The Bible is clear that the church is God's evangelizing agency to the very end of time. Therefore, there's no need of a rapture to get rid of the church so that God can use Israel. The foundation of the secret rapture doctrine is therefore built on shifting sand and it is therefore not biblically true. Well, we have examined the many clear texts of scripture that indicate that the second coming of Christ will be visible and personal. Let us now examine another major premise of the rapture doctrine, namely that the saints will not be here during the time of trouble or the final great tribulation and that the Antichrist does not appear until after the so-called rapture. So we're looking at, is there a secret rapture? We're at question 15 at the bottom of page five. Does the book of Daniel indicate that the saints will be delivered before or during the time of trouble? At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince that stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. Even to that time, and at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who's found written in the book. Friends, the book of Daniel indicates the saints will be delivered before or during the time of trouble. The answer is during. Daniel is very clear. It's while this great tribulation is going on for God's people that they are delivered. <clears throat> the deliverance does not come before the time of trouble, but during, just as it did to Daniel in the lion's den and to the three worthies in the fiery furnace. Friends, right now, a lot of people are finding life very, very stressful. These words are very soothing. They're very comforting from the Lord. Isaiah 43, 2 and 3 in the New Living Translation. When you go through deep waters, I will be with you. When you go through rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. When you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burned up. The flames will not consume you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Saviour. Perhaps at the moment you feel like you're drowning financially. You're not keeping up with your payments. Maybe you're feeling that you're being burned by fire, maybe in fiery trials or maybe in ill health. God has promised to be with us during these times. And in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, in the New Living, we read this. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. The Bible way out is never out, but going through fiery trials. That's what God is going to do for us. The Bible way out is not around or over or under, but going through the fiery trials. Let's go to question 16 at the bottom of page five. What promise does God give to his people while the plagues are being poured out during this time of trouble? In Psalm 91 and verse 10, no evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. Isn't that a beautiful promise? I absolutely love that in Psalm 91, 10. Verse 11, for God will give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. 
So what promise does God give to his people while the plagues, the seven last plagues are being poured out and other plagues? Neither shall any plague come near your dwelling. You know, friends, God does not promise deliverance from the plagues, but deliverance in the midst of the plagues. Troubles will fall all around, but they will not come upon God's people. Well, I'm sure we can all say amen to that. Question 17. What event is Paul talking about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 1? Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you. So, friends, what events Paul talking about? He's talking about the second coming of Christ. The Thessalonians are getting pretty worked up about it. We'll see why in a moment. So it's the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and how God's people are gathered to be with the Lord at that time. In this passage, Paul is talking about the second coming of Christ when the righteous are gathered with Jesus Christ. But there's nothing secret that's uh, being mentioned here. Question 18, according to Paul, what must happen before this day of the second coming and our gathering to Christ occurs? We go back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and the first four verses. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Friends, the Thessalonians were panicking because they'd been told by false teachers that they'd missed the second coming. This was what they were panicking about. Second Thessalonians 2, 3, Paul gives more details. He said to the church there, let no one deceive you by any means. For that day, which day, Paul? The day of the second coming will not come unless the falling away and apostasis, a falling away from truth, comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Perdition is an old English word, just means hell. So this is a man of sin called the son of hell. Paul goes on to give more details about this antichrist power. He opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Friends, if you have been with us in previous studies, you would know exactly who this power is and who Paul is referring to. So the answer to 18, according to Paul, what must happen before this day of the second coming and our gathering to Christ occurs? That day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. You know, friends, those who teach the secret rapture doctrine state that the man of sin, the Antichrist, will come after the second coming when the righteous are gathered to Christ. Paul's point is in direct contradiction to the rapturists. Paul states unequivocally that the day that we are gathered to Christ will not come unless the man of sin, the Antichrist, comes first. So Paul and the biblical order is Antichrist comes first, second coming follows second. The rapture teaching says second coming first, Antichrist comes second. Question 19. What will destroy the man of sin in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 8? And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. So what will destroy the man of sin? The brightness of his coming. 
Friends, it would be very strange for the man of sin, the Antichrist, to be destroyed by the brightness of Christ's second coming if he doesn't appear until after the second coming of Christ. That's a good point. It's obvious from Scripture that the Antichrist is fully revealed before the second coming of Christ to gather his saints. All right, we're going to take a break now, so please uh, direct your attention to the screen for an understanding of Luke 17, 34 to 37, which is one shall be taken, the other left. Let's go into an overview of the secret rapture doctrine. So the good news tonight is that I am not going to read that exhibit to you, but I am going to summarize it. So let's have a look at the screen together. One shall be taken, the other left. Rapturous use Luke 17, verses 34 to 37, and Matthew 24, verses 37 to 41, to prove that Christians will be raptured, rapturio, to be caught up, and non-believers are then left behind to endure anywhere between three and a half to seven years of tribulation. Tribulation just means a great time of trouble. Point two. Friends, the Bible is very clear about the fate of those who are left behind. In Noah's day, those left behind were drowned in the floodwaters. The point being that nobody wants to be left behind in this scenario. Number three, Jesus said those left behind would be devoured by eagles. In both cases, no one was saved as all left behind were left for destruction. So let's have a look at the verses. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. Where did it take them to? Well, friends, they were washed away. They were washed away to their destruction. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. So this is a model for what happens to those who are left behind. Let's go to Luke 17, 35 to 37, where the rapture doctrine is built out of these verses. Two women will be grinding in the field together. They'll be grinding grain together. The one will be taken and the other left. Two men will be in the field. The one will be taken and the other left. So the question is, left behind for what? Luke 17, verse 37. And they answered and said to Jesus, where, Lord? Where are these guys going to be left behind for? So Jesus said to them, wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Well, what does that mean? Do you think that Jesus had a very good understanding of the Old Testament? I think he did, and I'm sure that he probably had the Old Testament memorized. In Luke 39, 27 to 30, we find out what the eagles mean. Does the eagle mount up at your command, God asked Job, and make its nest on high? What did Job answer? A very wise man. He didn't answer anything at all. Silence is eloquence. On the rock it dwells and resides, on the crag of the rock and the stronghold. From there the eagle spies out the prey, its eyes observe from afar. Its young ones suck up blood, and where the slain are, there it is. Friends, a parallel text. 
Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried with a loud voice saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all the people free and slave, both small and great. That's a parallel verse, Revelation 19, 17 to 18. Friends, can you see there's no second chance? at or after the second coming of Christ. It's very, very powerful, isn't it? In fact, Jeremiah 25, 33 gives us more. At that day, the who? The slain of the Lord, because they're slain by the brightness of his coming. The slain of the Lord at the second coming shall be from one end of the earth, even to the other end of the earth. They shall not be lamented, nor gathered, nor buried. They shall become refuse on the ground. Friends, this is a very, very clear that no one is left alive during the time of trouble at the end of this time of tribulation. So we ask the question, what about the two in the field, one taken and one left? The Bible never, ever, ever teaches that those left behind are left alive. In fact, the wicked are all destroyed by what? That's right, in Luke 17, 27 to 37, by the brightness of his coming. So friends, it's exactly the same as what happened at the flood. Those left behind were left for destruction. Where did the secret rapture teaching come from? This is not in your lessons. I've got some extra material here. So continue to follow me on the screen and just have a rest from our lesson guide for a moment. All right, so the secret rapture teaching, where does it originate from? In lesson one, of the prophecy seminar, we indicated there were three ways people have historically interpreted the prophecies. Number one is the preterist view, which views the prophecies of Daniel and the Revelation as primarily fulfilled in the past. Daniel in the time of Antiochus Epiphanes and Revelation in the time of the Romans. Therefore, none of the prophecies, they say, have much value for us today. There's a second view, and that's the futurist view, which praise places all prophecy in the future. Hence, most of the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation have not yet been fulfilled. Rapturists are basically futurists. Thirdly, there is a historicist view of prophecy. This method of interpretation, which the Prophecy Seminar has followed religiously, sees the prophecies beginning in the prophet's day and then expanding down through history and climaxing at the time of the end. So in the outline prophecy view, details are added and explained and then expanded. The historical view has been the traditional interpretation of the Christian church for well over 2,000 years. But the preterist and futurist schools of interpretation are relatively new. It would also be helpful at this time to share the history of the preterist and futurist views. So stay with me on the screen. Here's the history. The great reformers, Martin Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, etc., all believed and used the historicist view of prophetic interpretation. That view saw the papacy as the major oppressor of God's people during the Dark Ages. And so it was their understanding, that is the reformers, that gave them the courage to step out and begin the Reformation as they saw the papacy described in the books of Daniel and the Revelation. Let me give you a quote on that from uh, J.H.M. de Bigny's History of the Reformation of the 16th Century, Book 6, Chapter 12, page 
2.15. Luther proved by the revelations of Daniel and St. John, by the epistles of St. Paul, St. Peter and St. Jude, that the reign of Antichrist predicted and described in the Bible was the papacy. And all the people did say, Amen. A holy terror seized their souls. Obviously, the Roman church did not like it when the reformers referred to her as the harlot and the beast. The Roman church then commissioned two Jesuits, Alcazar and Ribera, to find alternate views of prophecy that could take the blame off the Catholic Church. They each came up with an alternate view of prophetic interpretation. Alcazar devised the preterist method, while Ribera came up with the futurist view. Note the following. So great a hold did the conviction that the papacy was the Antichrist gain upon the minds of men that Rome at last saw she must bestir herself and try by putting forth other systems of interpretation to counteract the identification of the papacy with the Antichrist. My quote on the screen says it was Antichrist whom they beheld seated on the pontifical throne. That just means the throne of the popes. This new idea, which derived greater strength from the prophetic descriptions launched forth by Luther into the midst of his contemporaries, inflicted the most terrible blow upon Rome. So, friends, accordingly, toward the close of the century of the Reformation, two of the most learned doctors set themselves to the task, each endeavouring by different means to accomplish the same end, namely that of diverting men's minds from perceiving the fulfilment of the prophecies of the Antichrist being the papal system. The Jesuit Alcazar devoted himself to bring into prominence a preterist method of interpretation and thus endeavoured to show the prophecies of Antichrist were fulfilled before the popes ever ruled in Rome and therefore they can't apply to the papacy. On the other hand, the Jesuit Ribera tried to set aside the application of these prophecies to the papal power by bringing out the futurist system which asserts that these prophecies refer properly not to the career of the papacy but to some future supernatural individual who was yet to appear and continue in power for three and a half years. Thus, as Alfred says, the Jesuit Ribera about the year AD 1580, which is... Um, you know, four or 500 years ago, may be regarded as the founder of the futurist system of modern times. Let me quote to you from the Reverend Joseph Tanner in his book, Daniel and Revelation, page 16 and 17. Let's summarize what we've just learned. It is a matter for deep regret that those who advocate the futurist system, meaning the secret rapture, at the present day, Protestants as they are for the most part, are really playing into the hands of Rome and helping screen the papacy from detection as the Antichrist. Friends, that story is absolutely incredible because two Jesuit priests saved Rome from the Antichrist tag and have done so even today. Maybe I can illustrate it better for you in a chart. In AD 62, Paul said that the mystery of iniquity is already here. He was referring to the apostasy of the Roman Empire smashing Christianity. Then from 538, 
right through to 1798 AD, the 1260 years we had, the rule of the Church of Rome, who the reformer said was the anti-Christian power. It then suffered a deadly wound in 1798, but in 1929, it was revived by the Emperor Mussolini, who gave the Pope back his power. And so 1929, the Pope got the power back. And so that is the time where the Roman Catholic Church was restored in 1929 to the second coming. And so there we have the second coming at the end of time. So the preterist or past method of interpretation made up by Alcazar said, no, the Antichrist isn't now because he has already been. Then Ribera came up with the futurist future method of interpretation. The Antichrist is not on now. He's in the future. Friends, both methods are contradictory. Is the Antichrist in the past or is the Antichrist in the future? I think what Rome's saying is the Antichrist is either in the past, if you want, or in the future, if you want, but the Antichrist is not here now and has not been reigning on the earth since 538 AD. That's something to think about, isn't it? So who's the Antichrist according to the reformers? Very simply, it is the Church of Rome based in the great city of Rome, the Vatican City, and ruled by a man. Friends, a number of years ago, there was a very popular movie called Left Behind. Um, the sleeve jacket says on the back, um, suddenly, without warning, dozens of passengers in the plane simply vanish into thin air, but it doesn't stop there. It soon becomes clear that millions of people are missing from around the world. Friends, this Left Behind idea of the secret rapture spread around the world. It was found in the Schofield Bible. The Protestants ran with it. Charismatics were very strong on the secret rapture. And even today, many, many people hold to this idea that God's last day people do not go through any time of trouble. They are raptured and the time of trouble is left for those who are left behind on the earth. If you'd like more details on this, I have a DVD I can share with you called Left Behind Parts 1 and Part 2, where we go into a lot more detail. I also have a booklet on it that I'd be happy to share with you and can email to you. All right. Well, that takes us back to heading number four. We're back on uh, page six at the bottom. Jesus is coming. This is good news, isn't it? Why do the great men of earth cry to the rocks and mountains to fall on them at the second coming of Christ? Revelation 6, 15 and 16. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? Friends, the wicked do not want to see Jesus Christ. They're trying to hide. They're calling for the rocks and mountains to fall on them. They are scared of the wrath, the great anger of God as he comes back to destroy sinners who've rebelled against his love. The wicked, to the wicked, the second coming of Jesus Christ is a day of bitter despair and gloom. Friends, in this prophecy seminar, we have tried to share with you God's truth directly from his word. And I'm asking you tonight, if you're encountering new truth, to not walk away from this truth because this truth will not walk away from you. To the righteous, the second coming is a great day of joy and deliverance. It's what we're waiting for. I'm asking you tonight, which group are you going to be with? Which group are you choosing to be in at the second coming of Jesus? The decisions you make today and tonight will also determine which group you'll be in at the end of time. 
Question 21, in contrast to the wicked, how do the righteous respond to the second coming of Christ? In Revelation 19, 5 and 6, then a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all you his servants, and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, said there's 144,000 and the great multitude, as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. In contrast to the wicked, are the righteous happy about the second coming? A voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. There's a line from the wonderful work, musical work that Handel wrote, the Messiah. What a contrast. The wicked call for the rocks and mountains to fall on them. And the righteous praise and exalt God because Jesus has come. Friends, in this uh, illustration, note the joy of believers versus the fear and despair of the wicked. Do you know what the greatest agony is going to be at the second coming? It's not going to be based on those who missed heaven by a million miles. It's going to be those who missed heaven by that much. I want to ask you tonight, are you going to miss heaven by that much? Because Jesus wants you to be there. He loves you and will give you every empty heaven of every angel to make sure that you do not fall prey to Satan. What does the scripture call the second coming of Christ in Titus 2.13? Oh, this is fantastic. Looking for the what? That's right. The blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The second coming is called time and time again, the blessed hope by Christians. Well, can we know the exact time of the second coming of Christ? Jesus addressed this question. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. It's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus says no one knows the day or the hour? I'm wondering as we get closer to the end, if we might have a fair idea about the year. I don't know the answer to that. But Jesus said, no one will be able to guess the day or the hour. Can we know the exact time of the second coming of Christ? No, only the Father knows. But um, I need to remind you that Jesus Christ in heaven now knows when he will return. When he actually made that statement, he made that statement here on earth as a man. And he was not in that moment choosing to divine, to access divine information. So Jesus is in heaven and he knows the date and is working on the date with the heavenly Father. Well, can we know that the second coming of Christ is near? Absolutely. We need to be watching the signs. Now, learn this parable from the fig tree, Jesus said. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, Jesus said, when you see all these things, all what things? All the signs, like the signs of summer, the blossoms. All these things know that it is near even at the door. Yes, we can know that it is near, even at the door. While we do not know the exact day of Christ's return, we can know that it's near. Friends, this illustration shows it's minutes to midnight, and soon Jesus Christ is ready to return. He's um, a lot closer than I think a lot of the Christians think today. And I'm asking you tonight, are you ready? Question 25, what celestial signs did Jesus give to indicate that mankind has arrived at the last days? We're in Matthew 24, verse 29. 
Immediately after the tribulation or the terrible time of trouble of those days, the sun will be darkened. Notice these, um, these heavenly bodies. The sun will be darkened. Secondly, the moon will not give its light. And thirdly, the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Notice these signs. They're signs in the sun, moon and stars. But when did they happen? If we know when they happen, we'll know our proximity to the second coming. What celestial signs did Jesus give to indicate that mankind has arrived at the last days? The sun will go dark and the stars will fall from heaven. Immediately after the tribulation of the dark days, the note says, there occurred these two great celestial signs to indicate that we have come to the time of the end. On May 19, 1780, there was a great dark day that took place. On this particular day, an inky blackness crept across the land. John Greenleaf Whittier, the famous poet, wrote the poem Abraham Davenport, in which he described the great dark day. In some places, the darkness was so great that people could not read print in the open air at midday. Likewise, on November 13, 1833, there occurred the greatest meteoric shower in history, in which an estimated billion shooting stars fell over the United States and Canada. These great celestial signs indicated the approach of the predicted time of the end. We're then directed to read exhibit number two. Now, I'm not going to read that to you tonight, but I would like to just share a few brief screens to summarize it. Please direct your attention to the screen before we finish our lesson. Signs of Christ coming the dark day. On May 19, 1780, the sun was unaccountably extinguished during daylight hours. These are historical records. Webster's Dictionary refers to this phenomenon as the dark day. Only one dark day is referred to in history, not several dark days. The darkness extended over a large portion of North America from mid-morning and continued until midnight. Though many reliable records were made at the time, not one has ever been able to account for this uncanny darkness. It was not due to an eclipse for the heavenly bodies were not in the correct position. So Webster's Dictionary states the true cause of this phenomenon is not known, but it was a phenomenon of God. It was a sign of the last days. What was the second sign in the heavens? It was the moon. The disk of the moon through the nights of Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday last, May 16, 17 and 18 of 1780, was of a reddish copper colour, somewhat resembling her appearance at the time of her being totally eclipsed. The Pennsylvania Evening Post, 6th of June, 1780. And so that's the second celestial sign. Notice, already fulfilled. Let's go to the third celestial sign of November 13, 1833. And I'm going to read from The Falling of the Stars on page two of the exhibit. Before I do, The Falling of the Stars, the third sign. This third great phenomenon occurred about 50 years after the dark day on the night of November 13, 1833 when meteoric showers of unparalleled brilliance were witnessed over a wide area of North America. This unforgettable display of falling stars was by far the most spectacular event of its kind ever recorded. Eyewitnesses estimated that the stars fell like a continuous fiery hailstone at the rate of 200,000 hours for five or six hours and declared that they fell in the very manner described by John in Revelation 6.13. Even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken by a mighty wind. Friends, on the second page of the exhibit, 
The morning of November 13, 1833 was rendered memorable by an exhibition of the phenomenon called shooting stars, which is probably more extensive and magnificent than any similar one hitherto recorded. Another quote, probably no celestial phenomenon that ever occurred in this country since its first settlement was viewed with so much admiration and delight by one class of spectators, that would be the Christians, or with so much astonishment and fear by another class, and that would be those who were not ready for the coming of Jesus. And then the next one, it says for nearly four hours, the church, sorry, for nearly four hours, the sky was literally ablaze. Careful scientific accounts indicate that more than a billion shooting stars appeared over the United States and Canada alone. These great celestial signs inaugurated the day of last things that began that time period known as the time of the end. And we're in that time now. All right, let's go to question 26, our second last question. Since Christ is coming soon, what should Christians do? Matthew 24, 44. Therefore, Jesus said, therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Jesus returns like a what? He returns like a thief in the night. The answer is to be ready. One of my favorite writers says, get ready, get ready, get ready. What good advice that is. Notice, friends, this coming is not a secret coming. It's a very unexpected coming, like a thief in the night for the wicked. Friends, I'm asking you tonight, are you ready for Jesus to come? There was a, uh, a song a few years ago that said, are you ready for Jesus to come? Are you faithful in all that you do? Have you fought the good fight? Have you stood for the right? Have others seen Jesus in you? Are you ready for Jesus to come? Our final uh, question in the lesson tonight is 27. Is it your desire to be ready for this momentous event of history when Jesus Christ comes to fulfill Daniel 12.1 and deliver his people by his second coming? Then I'm hoping that you will say yes and that you are getting ready, getting ready, getting ready. Well, what have we discovered tonight in our three theme questions? Does Jesus Christ return to the earth in a secret coming? No, he doesn't. The scripture knows nothing of a secret coming. The second coming is visible, personal, noisy, climactic, decisive, um, and audible. Number two, are people left behind on the earth to be converted after the so-called rapture takes place? We learned there's no second chance. No, those left behind are destroyed by the brightness of Jesus coming at the second coming of Christ. So where did the rapture teaching come from originally? And that's the fascinating part, isn't it? By the Roman papacy, to counter its antichrist tag. That's where the preterist and futurist models of interpretation came from. Well, tonight for our quiz, uh, we're up to lesson 23. So we are now 70% of the way through the, uh, the uh, lessons. We only have one third to go. In fact, I believe after tonight, we only have nine more sessions to go. Time's running out quickly, isn't it? As we move toward the end of our prophecy seminar. If it is clear to you from the scripture that Christ is coming visibly, personally, and not secretly, could you put a tick in box number one? Number two, is it your desire to be ready to meet your Lord on that wonderful morning of the resurrection? Jesus said, if you confess my name before men, I will confess your name before the Father. Isn't that a beautiful promise?
Let's go to our five questions tonight. They're all true and false. Thank you for writing true and false on your envelope for those doing the quiz. Number one, the second coming of Christ will be visible, personal, and accompanied by a lot of noise. True or false? Well, that's an easy one to start off with, isn't it? That's question one. Number two, the Bible says the saints will be raptured out of the world before the time of trouble, so the saints don't actually have to go through the time of trouble. True or false? The Bible says the saints will be raptured out of the world before the time of trouble. True or false? Number three, when Christ comes to gather his saints, only the righteous will know it. When Christ comes to gather his saints, only the righteous will know it kind of suggesting something secret, isn't it? Number four, the great dark day occurred on May 19, 1780, and the falling of the stars occurred November 13, 1833. These were the dates mentioned in the exhibit, so I'd like you to write in there true or false. Oh, whoops, I might have given you a clue there. <laughs> and number five, the signs of the times indicate that we are not living in the time of the end today. True. Or false? Well, I think our answers are pretty straightforward tonight. Let's just give our answers. Question number one, the answer is true. Number two, the answer is false. Number three, the answer is false. Number four, the answer is true. And number five, the answer is false. The answers are true, false, false, true, false. Well, friends, what did we learn tonight in lesson 23? We started in Daniel 12. We learned that the second coming is not a secret in tonight's prophecy seminar. And we also learned that the secret rapture is a myth, that it's been made up. It's been superimposed on the Bible. The Bible never teaches a secret rapture, a secret time where people are caught up. God's saints at the end of time are given courage and strength to go through the period of suffering, which purifies their hearts and their souls and allows them to more fully reflect the beautiful character of Jesus Christ. What we will discover in next week's lesson, what powers are represented by the two beasts in Revelation 13? What is the mark of the beast? Number three, who will receive the mark? And number four, when of the mark? When is the mark of the beast received? Friends, I want to tell you next week, this lesson is not really one you can just cruise in and fill in. You can, but I'm warning you, you need to do your homework. This is a massive lesson. It's got a big exhibit in it. And, you know, so many people today are predicting the mark of the beast is the mark of the beast that, but they don't even know what the beast is. So we're going to clearly identify who and what the beast is. And we are also going to then speak about what the mark of that power is. So I really encourage you to download that lesson off the web and make sure that you go through that before you get to session number 24. Gracious Heavenly Father, these um, prophecies and scriptures of the second coming of Jesus fill us with hope and joy. What a wonderful time awaits us. But before the time of joy, there's a time of sorrow, the time of trouble such as never was a man on this earth. Lord, I'm just praying that uh, you will strengthen us for this battle, that you will give us peace in our hearts, and that when Jesus comes, we'll be there as unbroken families. Bless us as we continue to study and pray and follow your word. And we ask it in Jesus' powerful name. Let all the people say, Amen.
listening to Prophecy Seminar, the book of Daniel with Pastor David Price. For more information about this series, you can visit the YouTube page, True Blue SDA, all one word. That's True Blue SDA. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.